in chapter 7 right now. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 7, we'll continue our study in that chapter. We stopped at verse 12 last week, and we'll pick up with verse 13 this week. We're in the section of the book dealing with progressive sanctification, how God is in the process of making us more like himself. And uh, this section of the book comprises chapters 6, 7, and 8. In chapter 6, we have been learning about our new relationship to sin as those who have been justified by God's grace, that it uh, no longer is our master, but that we can fall under its authority and become its slaves again if we continue to yield to it. So the chain has been broken, but we may need to be careful that we do not uh, willingly submit ourselves to sin uh, habitually because it can gain the mastery over us if we do that. In chapter 7, Paul explained the different relationship that we have to the law of Moses because of our justification. And as we noted last week, in the first part of chapter 7, um, the law does not have authority over us anymore as Christians. We are not under the Mosaic law because when Christ died, he not only ceased to have a relationship to sin, but he ceased to have a relationship to the Mosaic law. And as our representative, uh, he pictures for us new relationships that we have to sin and to the Mosaic law uh, when we come to faith in him. Just as he died to sin, sin had no more power over him. So when we trust Christ, we die to sin. Sin has no more enslaving power over us. When he died, the law had no more power over him. When he died, uh, or when we trusted in him as our Savior, uh, the law has no more power over us. There's a direct parallel in uh, Christ's relationship and our relationship. So the law's authority over us has been broken because of our union with Christ. In the second part of this section of the chapter, beginning in verses 7 going through verse 12, uh, Paul clarified what the purpose of the law is, even though it is not our master anymore, even though it does not um, prescribe for us how we should live, yet uh, it does have an activity, and that activity is to clarify sin. Uh, the law is valuable because as we look at the Mosaic law, we gain a knowledge of God's standards, and we drew the analogy of an x-ray machine. The law is like an x-ray machine that points out what is under the surface, uh, namely sin, that we would probably not recognize as such if it were not for the law. So the law has a valuable function even today, even though you and I as believers in Christ are not obligated to keep the 613 commands that constitute the Mosaic Code. This brings us down to verse 13, 
the new section that we are going to look at this morning. And in this whole section, verses 13 through 25, there is a third emphasis, and that is the law's inability to provide the sanctification that we need. Um, We are not made more godly by keeping laws, contrary to what most people think. Usually, when we want to improve conditions, we make a law. Uh, This is done in Austin all the time and in Washington all the time. Uh, We want to deal with a situation. We want to make it impossible for certain things to continue to happen, and so we make a law. But it doesn't work. Maybe the politicians ought to read Romans 7 as well. No, there's a different way, and that way Paul will explain in chapter 8, and just for a short preview there, The change comes not through imposing external laws, but through a change internally, a change in one's heart, that God, by his Holy Spirit, who lives within the believer, affects. Well, I'm getting ahead a little, so let's get into verse 13 of chapter 7. Therefore, Paul draws a conclusion on the basis of what he has said and makes a transition into his next um, emphasis here in chapter 7. Therefore, did that which is good, that is, the law, the Mosaic law, become a cause of death for me? No, may it never be. Rather, it was sin that became a cause of death for me. In order that it, sin, might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, that is, the law. The law showed sin to be sin, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The commandment shows the sinfulness of sin. For we know that the law is spiritual. The law of Moses was very good. It was designed to govern the people of God under the Old Covenant. It was given by God himself on Mount Sinai in a great demonstration of glory and power with a fire on top of the mountain and an earthquake and smoke and everything that would impress the people with the fact that the law that Moses brought down from the mountain was from God himself. And the law was spiritual, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Obviously, the contrast in this verse is between the law and the believer. The law is essentially good, but uh, the believer is essentially flesh. And as Paul will proceed to explain, flesh is entirely bad. I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, this raises a question, of course, because in chapter 6, we just read that we are no longer in bondage to sin. So what did Paul mean when he said, I am sold into bondage to sin? Well, I think he was speaking of himself as a human being, 
And as a human being, all of us are bound to sin until we are released by God when we trust in Christ. He's talking about what we are by nature. He's talking about the old man, what we were before we trusted Christ as our Savior. We were completely bound in sin. So uh, this raises a question of whether what Paul says in the following verses, he says as a Christian or as an unbeliever. And uh, you'll find uh, good students of this passage who argue on either side of that question. Personally, I think the best evidence is that what he proceeds to say from this point on describes the experience of a genuine Christian. But because of this reference in verse 14, some have taken what follows to be a reference to what is true of all people, even unbelievers, and that Paul was speaking as an unbeliever. It is true that as people of flesh, people who have a sinful human nature, we have been sold in bondage to sin, and that bondage is only broken by faith in Christ. Now, in verse 15, he proceeds to give evidence of this. For that which I am doing, evidence that he is, in fact, bound in sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. I can't understand why I behave like I do, Paul says. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Now, Paul, of course, was steeped in the Mosaic law. As a Pharisee, he, uh, he was very familiar with the Mosaic law. And you'll remember that in more than one of his testimonies that are recorded in Scripture, he said that he followed the law to the letter. He was very careful to observe the Mosaic law. He said, I was not perfect in it. But probably Paul came as close as anybody ever did to keeping the Mosaic law. He says it was the Tenth Commandment that slew him, uh, the coveting command. But uh, if anybody could have been made more God-like by keeping the law, it would have been Paul. But he says, "...that which I am doing I do not understand." For I am not practicing what I would like to do. I'm not consistent. I know what I would like to do as a, as a believer in Christ. I would like to constantly do the will of God and please Him. But I am doing the very thing I hate. I'm sinning, even though I don't want to do that. So obviously the law did not change Paul. And it does not change anybody. It's an x-ray machine. It's not a bottle of pills. It doesn't improve our condition. It simply reveals our condition. A wealthy man went duck hunting with one of his employees named Sam. They took a horse and carriage. This is an old story. And on the way, a rim came off one of the wheels. As Sam hammered it back on, he accidentally hit his finger and let go with some bad words. 
Um, he asked God's forgiveness right there on the spot. He said, Lord, it's so difficult at times to live the Christian life. Sam said his boss, I know you're a Christian, but tell me, why do you struggle so? I'm an atheist. I don't have problems like that. I don't have a guilty conscience when I say something bad. Sam was silent for a while. Just then, two ducks flew overhead. The boss raised his gun, and two shots rang out. Leave the dead one and go after that wounded bird, he shouted. Sam pointed at the duck that was fluttering desperately to escape and said, I've got an answer for you now, boss. You implied that my Christianity isn't any good because I have to struggle so much. Well, I'm the wounded duck, and I struggle to get away from the devil, but boss, you're the dead duck. There's a lot of truth in that. As Christians, sometimes we naively think that we ought to have fewer problems than unbelievers. But in reality, we have more problems than unbelievers because we have this struggle within us. We desire to do what is right in a way that unbelievers do not desire. And yet we find ourselves falling short of that. And that creates real conflict within us. Conflict that that Paul articulated so well in this passage. Let's go on, verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. Now, Paul may be sounding like he's copping out here and that he's not taking responsibility for his actions, but I think he's really viewing himself in two different ways here. Um, So now, no longer am I, the new me, the regenerated me, it's not that person who is doing this sin, but it is the sin which indwells me that is responsible for it. Now, he would say, I'm responsible for it. But he says it's contrary to the new me, It's contrary to the person I have become in Christ to do this. He's referring to his sinful nature when he says sin. In chapter 7, when we read about sin, usually it's referring to our nature. In chapter 6, sin refers to actions. But here he's talking about his natural human nature, which is sinful. That's responsible, he says, for my doing what I'm doing. Uh, Pigs return to wallow in the mud because it's their nature to like to wallow in the mud. As human beings, it's our nature to prefer to pursue certain sins. That's the way we are. That's a result of our being descendants of Adam. Remember chapter 5, where Paul explained that because Adam sinned, our natures have been stained deeply. 
And uh, that's what Paul is referring to here. Our nature is to go after sin, but I really don't want to do that. It's no longer I, the, the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now that's a pretty strong statement, Paul. I know that nothing good dwells in me. I, well, let's wait a minute. All of us have had thoughts about being generous to people, about being sacrificial, about helping people. What's he mean that nothing good dwells in me? I mean, there are philanthropists who don't even know the Lord that do a lot of good. Well, I think he's talking about what we are essentially, that every aspect of our personhood has been stained by sin, that our human nature is sinful in every one of its parts. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our motives, our actions, our intentions, everything has been affected by sin. There is no part of me that is unaffected by it. And that's really what total depravity means. It's not that we, could, we are as bad as we could be, but that every part of us has been affected negatively by sin. There's not one part in me, Paul says, that I can point to that is untouched by sin. Nothing good dwells in me in that sense, that is, in my flesh. And here he's using flesh as representing his sinful human nature. For the wishing is present in me. I desire to do what is right occasionally. Certainly that indicates that he doesn't mean there's absolutely nothing good in me. Uh, there is wishing, and God is responsible for any good desires that we have, of course, so in that sense, it's not us, but, but it's him. The wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Even though I want to do what's right, Paul says, even though God gives me a desire to do what's right, I just can't bring myself to do it sometimes. This is so true to reality, isn't it? It's, it's so typical of us all. In 1964, Alan Redpath, who used to be the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, in fact, he was a pastor when I was going to that church uh, during those years, suffered a, a near-fatal stroke in the ensuing months, he sank into the depths of despair. He wrote later that it was as if the devil had bombarded his soul with terrible, wicked thoughts, the likes of which he'd not known in 20 years since he'd been a Christian. At one point, he prayed, O oh Lord, deliver me from this attack of the devil. Take me right home. It was then that he felt the Lord was saying to him, You have this all wrong. The devil has nothing to do with it. It is I, your Savior, who has brought this experience into your life to show you two things. First, this is the kind of person 
with all your sinful thoughts and temptations, which you thought were things of the past, that you always will be, but for my grace. In the second place, I want to replace you with myself, if you will. Admit that you are a complete failure and that the only good thing about Alan Redpath is Jesus. And that's where Paul's going to come out at the end of this chapter and lead us on into chapter 8 to realize that even though we cannot overcome sin by ourselves because of our sinful natures, there is victory in Jesus. Verse 19, For the good that I wish I do not do, you ever had a desire to do something and then just kind of uh, neglected it and it passed by? But I practice the very thing that I do not wish. Every Christian has a split personality, in a sense. He is living a living battleground on which good and evil vie for the mastery. And I think really sensitive Christians are more prone to problems with this conflict than, than other Christians who may not be dispositionally as sensitive. The believer has the old tendencies to sin, but he also has new desires to please God. This inner conflict can be very disturbing, but it need but not be defeating. Victory in the Christian life is possible not by our own human struggling, but by our yielding our lives to God and letting the Holy Spirit take over the battle for us. Romans 6.13. It's not by willpower, but the trouble with willpower is that we do not take into account an opposing factor, which is even stronger. It is like the predicament of the old farmer who was seen struggling with a bulky mule. Finally, someone asked, Why, Sam, where's your willpower? He replied, my willpower's all right, but you ought to come out here and see this animal's won't power. (laughs) Our fleshly nature, being totally depraved, wants only to do evil. When it comes to doing good, it has nothing but won't power. And anything that we do that is good is ultimately uh, a result of God working in our lives. As soon as we have the spiritual discernment to acknowledge this, we must flee to Christ and let the Holy Spirit take over. Let him work his work in us. How does this work out practically? Well, I face this struggle every day, as you do. And you know, I've, I've discovered an amazing thing, that if I will just pray about a temptation while I'm in the middle of it, God does provide help. Haven't you found that? Lord, help me. I'm just beleaguered with this temptation. Help me with that. And it's just a matter of seconds before the power of that temptation begins to subside. I may need to pray again 
Lord, help me. It's still there. But there will be added help if I pray that way, and I'll be able to get through it. That's the Holy Spirit providing the willpower that this depraved sinner does not have. Verse 20, But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I being the new me, the regenerated Christian. I find then the principle or the law that evil is present in me. He's not talking about the Mosaic law here now. He's talking about law as a principle. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. But it can't enable me to do good. Now, it's very interesting to me that uh, a large proportion of Christian teachers teach that uh, a genuine Christian will not continue in sin. I find that directly contradicted by this passage. They seem to, to think that if you, if you really know the Lord, you're going to just grow and grow and grow, and you'll never have any setbacks, you'll never have any real problems with sin. I think that's unrealistic, not only because of this passage, but also because of experience. Evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I say, yeah, that's, that's what I ought to do, Lord, what you've commanded me to do. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. This law that he referred to in verse 21, making me a prisoner. Now remember in chapter 7 or 6, he said that we are no longer the bond slaves of sin. But here he's talking about our sinful natures. We are bound to our human humanity as long as we live. We will never get away from the flesh, from our sinful human nature as long as we live. There will always be the struggle that we experience in the Christian life. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, the Greek word translated wretched, wretched refers to a person who labors to the point of exhaustion. He says, I am worn out with this struggle. I am wretched. Who will set me free from the body of this death, the body that is characterized by sin that leads to death? He just longed to be free of it. And haven't you felt that way as a Christian from time to time? Boy, it's going to be great to get to heaven because then I won't have these struggles with sin and temptation that I face day by day here on the earth. Who will set me free? The law can't set us free from these habits. 
Centuries ago, emperors of the Roman Empire saw torture as a legitimate way to put muscle and teeth into their laws. They were known to inflict punishment as as hideous as that of binding a dead man to the back of a sentenced uh, murderer. Imagine, if you're convicted of murder, you, you had to carry the corpse around tied to your back. Under penalty of death, no one was allowed to release the condemned criminal. This terrible practice calls to mind the words of Paul in this text. It's as if he felt that something dead was strapped to him and accompanying him wherever he went. He was actually expressing the experience of every Christian. We long for purity and holiness, yet at times we feel helplessly bound to the dead body of our flesh. Even though we are new creatures in Christ and we know that the physical body itself is not evil, the tendency to sin is always with us. And this causes us to cry out with the apostle, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? But verse 25 is the conclusion. And here is where hope comes in. Verse 24 is the low point in the book of Romans for the Christian. But now Paul introduces a gleam of hope. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He thinks about where the deliverance will come from, and he thanks God for it because it is all bound up in Jesus Christ. And he's going to explain the process in chapter 8. So then, this is a word of conclusion. So then, on the one hand, I myself, in contrast to Jesus Christ, with my mind, am serving the law of God. I want to do what he wants me to do. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. That's the predicament in which we find ourselves as Christians. The law is not able to liberate us from our sinful human natures. We cannot live by keeping laws. And you don't have to be a a Christian for very long before you discover that, do you? Nailing the Ten Commandments on your wall and repeating them every day is not the solution to living a godly life. It's helpful in that it reminds us of the will of God, but it does not give us power to obey the will of God. The power must come elsewhere. Well, this chapter is very important for several reasons. First of all, it corrects the popular idea that our struggle with sin is only against specific sins and habits, whereas it is also against our basic human nature. We are fighting sin on two fronts. Acts of sin on the outside of us that appeal to us and an innate desire to do what is wrong that is present in every Christian. We do not lose the sinfulness of our human nature when we become Christians. We do not become perfect, obviously, but neither do we lose that deeply died sinful nature, and we struggle with that. 
all of our Christian lives. Second, this chapter shows that human nature is not essentially good, but bad. And that's something that uh, many people don't realize, that our natures are essentially bad. You don't have to teach a baby to be bad. You have to teach him to be good. And the nature of a human being comes out early in life. Third, this chapter argues that progressive sanctification does not come by obeying laws, which is a form of legalism called nomism. Nomism, nomos is the Greek word for law. Keeping law. Sanctification doesn't come by keeping laws. It comes apart from law through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Paul only hints at in this chapter. It also proves that doing right requires more than just determining to do it. Determining to do it won't do it. All these insights are necessary for us to appreciate what Paul proceeded to explain in chapter 8. So in a sense, chapters 6 and 7 are all anticipating the good news that we will find in chapter 8. Now, we're not going to have a class next week because uh, we're only going to have one service next week at 11 o'clock. The 9 o'clock service and the 10 o'clock Sunday school classes are going to be canceled next week, so don't come for that. But the week following, the Lord willing, we'll get into this great chapter that uh, tells us the power that God has provided for us to overcome sin externally and the sinful nature internally. Let me contrast some results of our union with Christ that Paul identified in chapters 6 and 7, because I realize that this, this can be confusing. Perhaps this will help sort some of these things out. In chapter 6, the subject is the believer's relationship to sin. In chapter 7, it's our relationship to the law. That's the subject of these chapters, what he's dealing with. Sin in chapter 6, the Mosaic Law in chapter 7. In chapter 6, our former condition was that we were enslaved to sin. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, make that point. In chapter 7, our former condition is being obligated to keep the Mosaic Law. Enslaved to sin, chapter 6, obliged to keep the law, chapter 7, especially verses 1 through 6. Another contrast. In chapter 6, our present condition is that we are no longer slaves of sin. Its chain has been broken. We are no longer in bondage to acts of sin, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. In chapter 7, our present condition is that we are no longer obligated to keep the Mosaic law, verses 7 through 13 of chapter 7. No longer slaves of sin, chapter 6, no longer obligated to keep the Mosaic law, chapter 7. Another contrast. In chapter 6, our present danger is becoming is of becoming slaves to sin by going back into it, by yielding it to it 
Again, over and over again, chapter 6, verses 15 through 18. In chapter 7, our present danger is becoming incapable of overcoming the flesh by trying to keep the law. If our hope is in overcoming the flesh by keeping God's rules, we are consistently going to be disappointed and frustrated. This is the point he makes in verses 13 through 24 that we've been looking at. So chapter 6, becoming slaves to sin by yielding to it. Chapter 7, becoming incapable of overcoming the flesh by trying to keep the law. And a final contrast between chapter 6 and 7. In chapter 6, we're called to present ourselves to God and our members as his instruments. That's our present responsibility. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 23. Present yourselves to God and your instruments, your, your, uh, your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In chapter 7, our present responsibility is to trust and obey God, who alone can enable us to overcome the flesh. Trust and obey God, who alone can enable us to overcome the flesh. And this is introduced in chapter 7, verse 25, but then the whole of chapter 8 follows along and helps us to understand that more fully. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for giving us this helpful portion of Scripture. And even though it takes us into the deep recesses of our personal lives and the the struggles that all of us have with whatever the temptations may be that appeal to us strongly, uh, we realize that... uh, The way of victory is not just by toughing it out and willing to not do it, but that it is by trusting you who can lift us and empower us and even change our hearts. And Lord, we long for changed hearts. We long for hearts that are more desirous to do your will, who find sin increasingly repulsive and who find walking in the light more delightful. We pray that you will affect that change as we walk with you and seek to please you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that this is all possible because of what Jesus did for us when he came to this earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.